Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Now this episode is going to be a little bit different from what we normally do. We'll be back soon with our normal array of amazing guests who are thinking about performing under pressure, but in this episode we're going to dig deep and explore several of the models that we've sort of touched on on and off across the last several episodes. Now, I'm definitely a bit of a visual learner, so for me, this kind of thing does better with a video attached, and if you want to see the video with the slides that I'm going to be talking about, you can head over to our YouTube channel, which you can find on YouTube as The Emergency Mind. But if you're more of an audio person or you're listening to this in your car or something like that, no worries, it's going to be perfectly fine on audio as well. Before we jump in, a reminder, if you want to dig deeper into what we're up to, head over to emergencymind.com. There you can find things like our free, awesome newsletter, Knowledge Under Pressure, which you can find at emergencymind.com slash sign up, and more information about the book, The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. You can find that at emergencymind.com slash book. Okay, all that said, let's jump into this episode, and we're going to dig deep into these mental models. I hope you enjoy. Hey folks, I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Project. And in this video, we're going to explore five critical mental models that will help you, your team, and your organization improve your ability to perform under pressure. Now, all of these are models we've touched on briefly during conversations in the Emergency Mind podcast, which, by the way, you can find at emergencymind.com slash podcast. But our goal for this video is really to explore a little bit deeper into each of these mental models so you have a real sense of what we're talking about and can really understand when they come up in conversation. So the models we're going to look at are the Yerkes-Dodson curve, the ITSO matrix, the wedge model, the prepare, perform, recover, and evolve cycle, and the island chain model. Now for each of these models, I'm going to explore and sort of explain the model uh, as a general overview to start with, and then we're going to dig in and look at a couple of the salient features of it. There's a lot of depth in each of these that we're not going to go into, and this will really just provide you a much more in-depth overview of what we're talking about. Okay, so we're going to start with the Yerkes-Dodson curve. The Yerkes-Dodson curve is a exploration of how humans perform under pressure, how individuals perform under pressure. And what it looks like is the relationship of how performance varies as we increase the stress and pressure in a particular situation. What you have on the y-axis here is performance. So higher up values on the y-axis, you're performing a task better, and lower values, you're performing it worse. Along the x-axis, you have stress. So the farther along the x-axis, the more stress and pressure you're under, and the closer to the origin, the less stressful of a situation it is. And what you can see here in the curve is that we have what looks like sort of a bell-shaped curve. Now, sometimes this looks like an inverse U relationship, and sometimes this looks like a bell-shaped curve. But either way that you see it, what you have is in the center an optimal zone. And we're going to highlight that here for a second in blue. And so in the optimal zone, you are doing your best. Your performance is absolutely maximized. Now, it's important to note that this does not occur at zero stress, right? It occurs somewhere in the middle of the amount of stress that we're able to handle. And really, you can conceptually break this curve down into sort of three large zones, right? So in the middle is this optimal zone. Things are going great. You're performing really at the highlight of your ability. To the left of that is sort of a floppy zone, right? You're not really stimulated enough. You're a little bit flat on your feet. You're just not quite awake enough to really perform because the stress of the situation isn't really enough to push you. And on the right, you're overstressed, right? You're frazzled a little bit, and you're really being affected by the stress of the situation to the point where your performance is degrading. 
So we can sort of look at this as three zones, an optimal zone, an overly left shifted zone, and an overly right shifted zone. And in fact, that's the terminology that we're going to use about this, right? So we're in the middle, we're optimal. If we're too far stressed, we're right shifted. And if we're way too far stressed, then we're left, excuse me, if we're way not stressed enough, we're too much on the left side of this curve, then we're left shifted. The other thing that terminology gets us is the ability to think about actions as whether they right shift us or left shift us, right? So the most common way we're going to be applying this in emergency situations is that we're overstressed, we're overpressurized. We're in a situation where um, the reality of what's going on around us is affecting us. Uh, maybe there's a lot of screaming, there's a lot of blood. Um, it's a really high stakes scenario and we're under a ton of stress. And what that means is that we're right shifted compared to what we want to be. So the actions that we take to mitigate the effects of stress and pressure on performance are therefore called left shifting actions. All right. I just want to say that again, because that's really critical terminology, right? If we're too far stressed, we are right shifted. Anything we do to improve our ability to perform under pressure is left shifting us back into center. Now, obviously the opposite terms would be true. Also, if we are under stressed or under um, stimulated, then we are too far left shifted and the actions we're going to take to really rev ourselves up and get back to that optimal zone are called right shifting actions. Okay. Uh, so you might look at this curve and say, well, why is it shaped exactly like that? What are the tails like? How tall is the middle? How wide is that optimal zone? And you know, there's a lot of variability around that. Um, my hypothesis is that the shape of this curve is different for every person. And the shape of this curve is a little bit different even within that person based on what task they're doing. It's also very likely to be affected by a variety of other things that are outside the scenario at hand. So imagine you're trying to do a particular task, right? And that task is, let's say, intubate a patient, put a patient on a, a place of breathing tube and put a patient on a ventilator. The shape of the curve for you doing that task at that moment is likely affected by a variety of other things, some of which are intrinsic to that situation and some of which are not. So how challenging of a tube it is, how sick the patient is, those are things that are likely to change the amount of pressure and stress you're under. But other stuff like, are you hungry? Are you tired? What happened before that patient came in? How's your day been going in general? That's probably likely to change the shape of the curve as well. So what I'd encourage you to do when you're looking at the Yerkes-Dodson curve is think uh, is to concentrate less on the exact shape of the curve and concentrate more on the idea of the model, which is that there's an optimal zone of performance. And that optimal zone comes when you are somewhat stressed, but not too stressed and not under stressed. And so your job is to figure out where that optimal zone is for yourself to recognize when you are overly right shifted or overly left shifted, and then to take actions that shift you back towards the center. All right. So that's the Yerkes-Dodson curve. Let's move on to model number two, which is the ITSO matrix. Now, the ITSO matrix is a bit of a homebrew project from the Emergency Mind Project. It's something that uh, we use internally uh, and when we're working with various teams to help us understand the scope of different actions you can take to improve your performance under pressure. And so what you have here is a three by two matrix uh, where the rows, the three rows, uh, represent the different scales that we're working at. So the first row is I for individual. That's an individual size action, something that's done by one person. The second row is T for team, which is a small group subset, everybody working together to solve a particular problem set. And the last row is S for structure or uh, C for culture, but 
S tends to make a better sounding thing for the name of the matrix. So we're going to call that a structure. And what that is, is a large scale organizational level. All the things that are beyond the scope of a particular team working on a problem set. That might be the culture of the organization the team is part of. Uh, it might be the culture of a hospital the team is working at. If it's a medical team, um, it might be the broad scale uh, interaction between that team and multiple other teams over which they don't have direct control. But whatever it is, it's the largest set of organization. So again, as you're moving from the top row down through the other rows of this three by two matrix, you're going up in order of magnitude and up in order of complexity. Again, individual, team, and structural. Now, shifting gears, when we look at the columns, we have an on column and an off column. And what we're really referring to here is uh, on the X or off the X, where X represents the exact problem set that we're doing. So there's a bit of a fractal nature to this. You can think of uh, the X as sort of a, an easy way to look at it is shift, right? So are you doing a technique on shift or are you doing something off shift? Uh, it can also though be a lot more focused than that. So maybe I'm on shift, but what we're really concerned about is the one or two moments of critical decision-making where I'm deciding whether or not I'm going to put somebody in a breathing tube. In that case, my X is actually those critical moments and my off X is everything that happens before and after that. This is going to link up a little bit later when we talk about the prepare, perform, recover, and evolve matrix, right? The performance piece is really going to be the on X and the rest of it, prepare, recover, and evolve is going to sync up with the off X part of this. Now it's, you might think to yourself, okay, well, how do I know if I'm on X or off X? And the answer is pretty clearly, you know, right? The on X is the most important action step and the off X is everything that supports that. So when you put all this together, um, you have uh, this matrix, um, which allows you to sort of dictate or to sort of conceptualize and uh, put a framework around a particular technique you're working on. Um, and so here, for example, you could imagine, uh, let's say you were a team that wanted to work on doing a better after action report. Uh, and you wanted to include that as a hot wash, which is sort of an immediate after action report. And then a little bit of a slower deep dive into what happened after the shift. Okay, that's a really important thing to work on. That is a set of techniques that's been brought up by a number of our guests on the podcast and something that we really believe in at the Emergency Mind Project, which is using various scales of debriefing to learn the most that you can from a particular situation. Okay, so you want to work on that and you want to figure out where that fits into your overall strategy of all of the different techniques you're using to perform under pressure. You can map that technique along the ITSO matrix. And in this case, we know that uh, it's going to be done at the team level because we're debriefing with a team. So that'll put us in the middle uh, of the rows right along the team row. And we think that a lot of it's going to happen on shift because we're doing this as an after action report hot wash, but a little bit's going to happen off shift because we're also doing a, uh, a second tier, a second wave debrief. And so we can say, all right, this technique is going to fit basically uh, in the middle vertically and a little bit left of the middle horizontally. Um, and if you're looking at this on a video, you can see that we've put a dot here that sort of represents that. Now, for an individual technique, knowing where it falls on this will help you understand what sort of systems you have to bring online to really work on it. If it's an individual level technique, it's really mostly on you to figure it out as a person or on your teammate who's the individual doing it. If it's a team-based approach, then you really need to have buy-in of everybody who's working on that particular problem set. And if it's a structural-based approach, obviously you need to go in order of magnitude up and make sure there's buy-in from the organization.
The other thing the ITO matrix lets you do is map your entire portfolio of techniques that you're using, right? So if you have a couple of things that you particularly, or a, um, a small set of things that your group does to improve performance under pressure, you can map all of them along the ITO matrix, and you'll be able to pretty clearly identify where you're putting your time and energy, and also what holes you have available that you need to work on, right? So if you find that most of the techniques you're currently working on are things that are deployed by an individual on shift, but really you haven't done any work in terms of structural things that are done off shift, the ITO matrix will help you find that and be able to really address it. All right, so that's the ITSO matrix. Again, uh, ITSO is I-T-S-O, and the I-T-S stands for the individual, team, and structural levels, and the O is a mix of the on and off. So the ITSO matrix, a three-by-two matrix that gives you a framework for localizing techniques that you're working with. Okay, here we go with model three, which is the wedge model. Now, the wedge model is a way of looking at the application of graduated pressure, uh, which allows us to really field test this technique before we're applying it in our most high pressure uh, scenarios. So what we have here is a right triangle where the, uh, the low point or the sharp end is labeled low wedge and the I guess high point is labeled high wedge. And we're gonna use this just like we use any sort of a wedge in real life, which is that we're gonna start with the low end where there's less friction, and then we're gonna apply pressure to this in order to get the entire thing into where we want it to go. Um, it, it's easier to think about this if we start uh, by defining high wedge first. So when we think about high wedge, we're talking about a real life ultra high stakes scenario. So this is, um, let's say, uh, a cardiac arrest or something where life is on the line, where there's high degrees of uncertainty, there's incredible amounts of pressure, uh, and we are really working at the maximum of our capacity. Ultimately, high wedge is where we want our different techniques to be able to work, right? This is where we want to be able to perform at our best under pressure but it's not something that we start with, right? Instead, we start on the other end, which is low wedge. And a low wedge scenario is one of two things. It's either a, um, uh, a simpler version of a high wedge scenario, or it's a simulated version of a high wedge scenario. And, and those sort of work in two different ways. So first, um, we might think about a uh, simpler version of a scenario. So if a high wedge scenario is a cardiac arrest, then a low wedge scenario uh, is maybe a patient who's very sick, but not quite in cardiac arrest, or a patient who is um, really not so sick, uh, but we want to try something out with. Um, not in the sense of, of course, experimenting on a patient, but in the sense of we have a new technique that we're working on to control our own ability to perform under pressure. Um, say, for example, a new technique that we're going to use uh, to left shift us back towards center on the yerkes dodson curve, we're going to deploy that in a simple, uh, easy case, something that is low wedge, before we apply it in a real cardiac arrest scenario, something that's high wedge. Now, alternatively, a low wedge scenario can be a simulated version of a high wedge scenario. So maybe we want to try something like intubating or placing a breathing tube in the middle of a cardiac arrest situation, but it, it's really high wedge and we don't want to necessarily try it for the first time in a real life scenario. So what we're going to do is set up a simulated cardiac arrest and we're going to practice our technique there in that low wedge version of a real life high wedge scenario. Now, Either way, either a simpler situation or a simulated situation, uh, what this allows us to do is practice a technique under low stress, lower risk um, 
environments so that we can figure out what fails and fix it and pressure test it before we're ready to deploy it in a high wedge scenario. If we don't do this, if we deploy a new technique in a high wedge scenario to start with, it's likely going to break and we're not necessarily going to understand why it'll break, right? We don't know if it broke because a particular component isn't the right component or it's the right component, but we didn't actually perform it correctly. And when we do that in a low wedge scenario, we're able to really isolate and use these different failures that happen to improve both the technique and our ability to perform the technique. Um, so just sort of continuing the example, you could imagine that a high wedge scenario is a cardiac arrest or a trauma. And if you're watching this on video, this is a picture of uh, a recent, um, of our room after a recent, uh, uh, individual had suffered a gunshot wound. And this is a really high stakes, high wedge scenario. Um, a lower wedge scenario of this is simulated, right? So you can imagine setting up a simulated trauma, or in this case, if you're watching this on video, this is a picture of a simulated airway case. Um, and then you have extremely low wedge scenarios, which are things that are uh, really um, easy to use and easy to work with scenarios that, that are the first steps in really deploying a technique under pressure. And, and here we have an example of an extremely low wedge scenario, which is you spilled coffee. Now at first, you might not be able to draw a, a straight line between figuring out how you handle spilled coffee and how you handle a cardiac arrest, but it's all along this wedge, right? So extremely low wedge practice is deploying your techniques that allow you to perform under pressure in these low stakes scenarios, things like spilling a cup of coffee before you're really rolling it out in even low wedge practice, which is simulated or high wedge practice, which is all the way a real life scenario. Okay, so that's the wedge model. We're going to use this triangle to describe it, and we're going to use our low wedge scenarios to help us out before we're really deploying techniques in high wedge situations. All right, on to model number four, which is the island chain model. Now, this is a model that is really on the individual and team side of stuff, if we think about it in the ITSO matrix, and it's something that's really deployed mostly on the X. And what this model is about is about breaking down um, complex things into simpler parts, and it's about breaking down the mental effort of tackling a really complex scenario into the mental effort of moving between islands in a chain. Um, and the best way to sort of describe this is that imagine you're trying to do a thing under pressure and the, let me rephrase that. The scenario we typically deploy this in is a cardiac arrest case. So you start at some position and that position is the patient's in cardiac arrest and you have some position you want to get to, which is ROSC or return of spontaneous circulation. Now, when you're first starting, uh, one of the reasons that feels so challenging and one of the reasons it's so hard to apply your knowledge under pressure in that type of a situation is it feels like you have to get from A to Z all the way in one fell swoop, right? You're at A, cardiac arrest, and you're trying to get to Z, the return of spontaneous circulation. And the path between those things is just really unclear, right? So uh, you're not really sure how to get from one to the other. The island chain model suggests that instead of trying to get all the way from A to Z, you instead break it up into spaces where you know what you're doing. So instead of A to Z, you go from A to B, from B to C, from C to X, from X to Y, and from Y to Z, right? And each of these letters in this sort of a model are individual islands where you know what to do. So again, when we're thinking about the cardiac arrest example, right, we can imagine that getting everything from zero to BLS level skills is 
the first island that we're going to get to, right? So we come into a room, the patient's in cardiac arrest. Okay, we got a lot going on. Well, we're going to concentrate instead of on the whole thing, just on getting to the first island that we understand. Okay, well, what does it take to run BLS? Well, let's get uh, chest compressions ongoing and let's get somebody on the airway with a bag valve mask and let's call for backup. Okay, great. That is a good first step right? We've made it to the first island in this chain of islands. All right. Well, now what do we do? Well, let's get from BLS level skills uh, to the next step. Well, let's put pads on the patient. Uh, Let's get an IV into them and let's get to the point where we can start delivering our ALS level of care, right? So again, we're moving from zero to the first island, which is BLS level of care. And then we're going to move from there to the second island, which is ALS level of care. And already we've done a couple of things that are really important, which is that we've overcome the friction of inaction. When we start running a critical case or when we first encounter uh, an emergency, it can be really hard to figure out what to do because we're looking at the whole path. We're trying to get from A to Z. And what the island chain model allows us to do is recognize we don't have to do that. We just have to move from where we are to the next island and then to the next island. And we can continue doing that all the way along the path until we get to where we want to go in this case, which is return of spontaneous circulation. Now we can run this over and over again. Um, And what we can do is say, all right, well, what are the different steps along the way that we think we can reach? All right, well, we want to be able to get from BLS to ACLS. That's uh, two islands we want to work between. All right, if we understand that that's a skill set that we have to deploy, how do we practice that? And we can derive... um, dedicated training or sim cases, or to use uh, the lingo of our wedge model, we can use low wedge scenarios to really study that one transition where we're moving from island one to island two. Um, When we're really good at that, okay, we can think about, well, what's the next island we're going to get to? And we can sort of design our training to follow our way along this chain. So again, this does two things. It decreases the mental energy of trying to approach a complicated problem set by splitting it up into sub-problem sets, and it allows us to focus our training onto the sub-problems uh, or the transitions between islands where it's most needed. All right, and the fifth and final model we're going to look at in this video is the prepare, perform, recover, and evolve cycle. Now, this is a cycle we've talked a little bit about on the podcast through a variety of guests, and it represents really a summary of how elite performers um, look at performance under pressure across a variety of domains, both in and out of the emergency department. And we're going to step through it. So um, when I first started thinking about human performance under pressure, when I was first learning about how to really improve my own performance in the emergency department, uh, I really focused only on the perform piece. And usually this is what I hear from other folks as well across different domains, which is that when they first start getting interested in performance, what they think about is performance only, right? Which is really just like what you're doing in the exact moment that you're trying to do a technique. So Let's say, for instance, the technique we're going to use here is placing a central line, a long IV catheter into the neck. Uh, And what you want to think about is how to handle the pressure of the scenario. The patient's really sick. They're moving a little bit. uh, They're on blood thinners, so you know they're going to bleed a lot when you're doing this. And you're worried about getting, um, you're worried about the pressure of the situation getting to you. Uh, And so what you're going to do is think about how do you mitigate the pressure and how do you perform better in that exact moment. To contextualize that back through um, the different models we've been using, uh, right? what we're talking about is that you are right-shifted on the Yerkes-Dodson curve, and you want to be able to left-shift in that exact moment. You're thinking as you're doing that about the individual on the X uh, 
quadrant or uh, square, which is the top left of the ITSO matrix, right? You're at the individual level and the onyx um, part. Uh, and you're, you've maybe practiced it in a low wedge environment, but this is really a high wedge scenario because it's a sick patient on blood thinners that's quite complicated. Um, and you're going to go through the different steps of the procedure uh, and think about each one as you move along the different steps along that island chain, as opposed to trying to go all the way from no central line all the way to central line. Anyway, all of that is to say that you're really hyper-focused on performance. And performance is obviously incredibly important, right? That's what you need to do to actually deliver your skill in the moment. But the longer that I spent working with high-performing individuals and teams, the more I realized that performance is really only part of the picture. And what we're missing when we only think about performance is what happens before and after performance and what allows us to improve our ability to perform for next time. And that's what the rest of this cycle is really all about. Okay, so if performance is actually doing the skill, we're going to move uh, actually backward to start on the cycle and start at prepare. So prepare is all the things that happen before you're actually ready to perform. On an individual level, uh, it's getting ready to do the skill. It's studying the skill in a low pressure or low wedge environment, and it's making sure that you really understand exactly how the components of that technique work. It's also getting yourself ready to handle the pressure, right? It's being able to develop your personal set of skills that allow you to left shift back into center and handle the pressure of, of a moment. Um, now that happens uh, both immediately before you do the performance, right? It's in the moment beforehand when you're visualizing what's going to happen and you're getting ready to actually do it. It also happens well before the moment of performance when you're in school learning how to do the actual technique. Um, and in fact, anytime that you're in a low edge scenario where you're handling uh, performance under pressure, that's really the preparation part of this cycle. Okay, so that's prepare. We talked about perform. Now let's talk about what happens immediately afterwards. So congratulations, you've placed the central line in this very complicated patient. Uh, medicines are going in, things are looking up, and the patient's getting better. Way to go. But what happens afterwards, right? And that's the recover phase. Now, recovery is all about coming down from the event and returning to an equilibrium, right? You are really hyped up uh, in a high-stress environment to perform. You're using various techniques to help you left shift. And what you need to do now is step down back into a normal uh, normal phase where you're able to really re-equilibrate with what you're doing. Now, in the moments after, that looks a lot like taking some deep breaths, calming yourself down, and allowing your normal systems to sort of come back online away from stress mode. Um, in a longer scale thing, it also looks like the ability to return to center after a really challenging event, right? So let's say that the performance piece didn't go the way that you want it to. Recover is all about allowing yourself to accept that reality and to let the stress wash out from you in preparation for learning more from what happened. Uh, and that brings us along to the next part, which is evolve. Now, uh, evolution or the evolve step of this cycle is where you take what happened, you recovered enough from it that you're able to learn from it, you take what happened and you really dissect it, break it down, and compare what actually happened to what you wanted to happen, and you derive a way to learn and move forward from it. So evolution is about connecting the past to the future, right? And it's about taking what you just went through and designing a path forward to doing it better. And part of this is about the, the ethos of never wasting suffering, right? And that's something we use a lot in the Emergency Mind Project. 
And when we talk about this, we're talking about leveraging every case that we go through, everything that we that we experience, all of the suffering that our patients go through and all the suffering that we go through as providers, and really leveraging that in order to get better and making sure that the next time somebody comes in that needs this particular skill set, we're better able to deploy it than we were before. Now, sometimes that evolution is pointed inward, right? We might say, well, we tried a particular technique to, to left shift us back to center. You know what? It didn't really work the way that we wanted it to. Okay, no problem. That's learning. What we're going to do now is go back to the te that technique and apply it under a variety of low-wedge scenarios so that we can practice it and get better at doing it until we're able to perform it better next time that we need to. Sometimes that learning is outwardly focused, right? As we move along our ITSO matrix, we're saying, okay, we did a very good job as an individual, but we want to push this skill more towards our team. All right, what can we do about that? Well, we can turn what happened into a case study and we can identify key decision-making points that we had to make and turn that around and give that decision-making exercise to the rest of our team. Uh, and in that way, we really leverage what happened and use it to evolve, not just us, but the entire team. All right, so that is a brief overview, super brief, of the prepare, perform, recover, and evolve cycle. And it's really important to mention here as we, we close out that this is a cycle, right? You go through prepare, perform, recover, and evolve over and over again over the course of tackling a complex problem set. It's not a one-time thing. It's a lifestyle of going through this cycle again and again. All right, that brings us to the end of this brief deep dive into five mental models. We talked about the Yerkes-Dodson curve, the relationship between stress and pressure and that inverse U. We talked about the ITSO matrix, uh, a way to frame and contextualize the different techniques we use into individual team and structural components, both on and off shift. We talked about the wedge model, which allows us to incorporate low wedge scenarios to train so that we're able to deploy skills in a higher wedge environment. We talked about the island chain model, which is all about taking a really complicated high stress scenario and breaking it down into parts which we're able to digest and uh, execute on. And we talked about the prepare, perform, recover, and evolve cycle, which is about expanding our view of performance under pressure away from just performance into incorporating also the moments before and after and the moments of learning and evolution. That's a lot. Uh, and it's a lot for a short time frame. I'd encourage you to go back through this video again or go back through this podcast again and really think through these. And as you go on to your next shifts, whatever that may be, think about how these models come up and start using them. Start talking about them. That's really how you're going to make them your own and start applying them in your day-to-day -day life. I hope this helped. I hope this was awesome. Uh, if you want to learn more about these models and about how we apply them under pressure and in general about how individuals, teams, and organizations really thrive under times of emergency, head to emergencymind.com. All right. Good luck out there. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right, good luck out there.